Good evening. This year will be Bezrat Hashem Leilui Nishmat Vora Bat Mercedes, Refuat Victor Morales, Refuat Chaim Yuda David Ben Victoria, Mordechai Ben Boba, Leilui Nishmat Shmuel Baruch Ben Shimon. Hope I did not forget anyone. It's the outside of the Baba Sali. Baba Sali, as you know, as one of the holiest people that lived in our generation and the previous generation. The way he lived was uh, every, move, every moment of his life was midat chasidut, above the requirements. You have the requirements to be a tzaddik, but his uh, level was above what is required by uh, a Jew how to be. Didn't eat meat all week, it was 45 kilo, covered his hair like a woman, things that nobody heard of. The level that he had. As a, as a pause of that, as results of all of that, he had Ruach HaKodesh, holy vision. He was also big in Kabbalah. And two of the greatest things about him, besides being a tzaddik and a chacham, it was that his blessings used to be blessed, right? Like Hashem said to Avraham Avinu that you will be able to give brachot. I'm giving you the source of the blessing will be in your hand. Meaning that you're going to give brachot. Usually how, how a blessing of a person walk. Obviously you have to be a tzaddik. You're rasha what power your blessing is going to have. If Hashem himself cannot stand you and you bless someone, why would he listen to you? But it's not enough just to be a tzaddik. Yes, yeah, so you also have to be very honest with your mouth. Not to lie, not to say things that are not permitted. So if the, the mouth is clean and blessed, then whatever comes out of this mouth has much more power than someone who all day lie and, uh, you know, and cares and who knows what he does with his mouth. This mouth doesn't have a power. So if someone always stick to the truth, always say the truth, never lies, only speaking Torah and Tehilim and mitzvot with his mouth, the mouth is, has a power. It's blessed. And there is one more thing. The amount of your merit, how much merit you have, the more merits you have, the more Hashem is willing to do for you. Meaning you're not just another son. If a person has a hundred kids, one is unique. Why? He has a lot of points, good points. Meaning he pleased his father more than others. His account is much more full than anybody else. How do you gain merit? A few ways to get married. Best way to get married is to save souls. The more children of Hashem you save, every one of them produced for you billions of mitzvot in his lifetime. Literally. If he learns Torah a whole day, right there it's 600,000 mitzvot. He keeps Shabbat, he goes to your account. He makes brachot, he goes to your account. He donates money, he goes to your account. You duplicate yourself. 
You make one bad tshuva, you are two now. You make another one, you are three now. You make ten, you, are, you became eleven people. Eleven people produce for you mitzvot. And then they have children, and then they have grandchildren. So let's say after 20, 30, 40 years, you can have who knows how many tens of thousands of people who are producing for you merits, schuyot. Someone like that also have schuyot. So this is an example. Also if someone supports Torah, a righteous person that supports yeshiva, supports Torah, thanks to him, there's a lot of good things happening in the world, so he also gains schuyot. There is a lot of schuyot. Uh, the Gemara said that Rabbi Shimon had a dream that uh, in Olam Abba he's going to be together with the cook, with the chef. Rabbi Shimon Mechayem Etim is going to be in Olam Abba with a caterer. Not exactly such an honor, no? With all due respect to all the caterers. First you have to understand who Rabbi Shimon is, right? So he got very concerned. Why, after all my life learning Torah, <coughs> learning Kabbalah, doing so many things, in the end I'm going to end it up like with an ordinary caterer? Something here doesn't add up. As for, for those of you who don't understand what does it mean to be a Tana in Egmara, Tana. You know, I give you the order. You have the the fathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Then you have the tribes, all the children of Yaakov, that's coming next. Then you have Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest prophet. That's one of the 13 principles of Judaism. Moshe, Adon Lekol Nevin, the master of all prophets, among Jews and among Goim. Then after Moshe, you have the, the rest of the prophets, you have judges, you have prophets, and then comes the Tanaim, which was about 2100 years ago, 1900 years ago. It's a period of all the Tanaim in Eretz Israel. And then after the Tanaim comes the Amoraim, which is about 200 to 300 years later. And then after the Amoraim comes the Savoraim. And after the Savoraim, you have the time of the Geonim, which is about 1100 years ago. After the Geonim, you have the time of the Rishonim. The Rishonim, which is 900 years ago, 800 years ago, 700 years ago, 600 years ago. Then you have Shulchan Aruch, which was 500 years ago, was written, and from then on is Achronim already, after that. And now we have Achrone Achronim. Meaning not just Achronim, Achrone Achronim. Another, another level below. That's the generation of today. So, you know, for us to understand who was Avraham Avinu when we talk about him in Egmara, or Yaakov Avinu, people that spoke to Hashem. And then we go even to the time of the Gemara, the Tanaim. And, uh, and the Tanaim, you know, the Gemara said that if you were not able to revive the dead, your name is not mentioned in the Talmud. 
So every name that is mentioned in the Talmud, that means he, he was enough, he had enough power and knowledge to bring the Neshama back into the body. And obviously nobody in the world can do that today. Just to give you an idea, the, the level of, the, of those Tanaim and Amoraim as well. He used to be a very big rabbi. Is 250 years ago, he lived in Hungary. His name Rabbi Moshe Sofer, or the Khatam Sofer. He's known as the Khatam Sofer. He was a very big Rosh Yeshiva in uh, Preshburg. How do you pronounce Preshburg? Preshburg. Preshburg, it's in Hungary. The best brains in the area learned over there. Top, top students. One time in the middle of the shiur that the Khatam Sofer was teaching, the students could not understand the words of Rashi. Rashi lived 900 years ago in France. He is the greatest commentary on the whole Torah and the Talmud, always number one in explanation and commentary, it's Rashi. Without Rashi, we wouldn't know basically nothing. He opened up the Torah for us, the prophets, the Talmud, everything is Rashi. Everything you understand, Rashi, it's all Beruach HaKodesh, it's in like a vision. It's Marash, like the words of Hashem. And uh, they didn't understand the words of Rashi, because remember, in those days, people spoke in a very brief way. Mamash, they counted the words. I'll give you an example. Rashi, when he explained in ten words, you can write a book about it. That's how deep it is. His grandson, 50 years later, one generation later, the Rashbam, when he explained, is already 10 times longer. Yes, 10 times longer already. To say what his grandfather said in 10 words, he needed 100 words. Not Chaz Shalom, that he was not a huge Chacham, but just to show you the brain of Rashi was like a super mega computer. Sometimes you have to sit all day to try to understand why did he say this word, just until you finally break through. Then you had many like this, many like Marsha. You can stand 10 hours to try to understand five words in a Marsha. Very difficult, the way they spoke. There's two reasons why they spoke in a very brief way. One is because they were in such a high level they didn't need to waste time. Second reason is there was no papers. You didn't have papers. You needed actual gvil, like Sefer Torah. You have to take the skin from the cow, remove the hair, process it. It's very expensive. Today, when you want to buy a cloth of mezuzah, it's more than $10. Before you even start writing the mezuzah, just the, the square, that little square, piece of paper would be a penny. This is more than $10 in Israel. If we'll be here, it will be $20. Why? It's a whole process to make it. The Sefer Torah without writing, just the cloth, the entire Sefer Torah would be $10,000 to buy it. Without, before the writing, that takes between one to two years to write. You know, a good Sefer Torah Kenazi today is fifty thousand dollars. Faradi maybe thirty-five, forty. Faradi is always thirty percent cheaper 
also tefillin, mezuzot, everything is a little bit, because the writing, it takes a little bit faster to write. So the Chatan Sofer is giving shiur about Rashi. By the way, the Gaon Mivilna, he lived 200 years ago, 250 years ago. But he was an exceptional Chacham. Even though it's Tkufat Achronim, you could have put him 800 years ago, he would still be big. The Gaon Mivilna. It was something extraordinary. The Gaon Mivilna wrote the whole Torah in reverse. 304,805 letters in reverse from a memory. Supercomputer, you don't find people like this in the world. The Gaon Mivilna have one book. The entire book is abbreviation. There's not one word over there. Just abbreviation. Four letters for four words. Five letters for five words. The one after the other. That means in one page you actually have ten pages. But it's all Rashi Tavot. It took years. Years to break through what it really wrote over there. But for him it was easy. Right? He see five letters, he already know the five words. No dilemma. You don't find brains like this no matter where you go today. Even though I have to admit that I one time saw a Russian guy. I saw a little clip that someone sent from YouTube. A Russian guy that you ask him any question in math in less than two seconds he answered. But not just math. Let me give you an example. 10,721 multiplied by 14,735. How many hours it would take us to figure it out? In one, in two seconds he answered, he gives you the answer. Like an autist. That's how the autistics are. They look at the whole page in a newspaper, one second, and then they can tell you everything that was there. Clue, telephone number, everything. So I don't know what's in that brain. How does he do it? Only Hashem knows. But same thing like this. I always like to tell that story about that uh, black guy from France that is autistic, probably in his 30s, that they took him on a helicopter above Paris. Paris is a very detailed city with all the architecture over there and all these buildings and the special windows. And they just showed him from the helicopter when he flew above Paris. And they put him in a room. And he drew on a wall the entire city of Paris. Every line, every window, every roof of a building, everything. You have to see this. And in front of your eyes, you see. That just to show you the ability of the human brain. And now you understand that we don't even use 1% of it. Right? So this Chachamim, for whatever reason, it could be their holiness, it could be the time they live, it could be the, the level of their soul, it could be many different things. They were in a very high level people, very high. So the Chatan Sofer, one of the Chachamim, so he's teaching something about Rashi, and they couldn't understand it for a long time, the student. One of the students said to the Chatan Sofer, Kvod Arab! Why we are insisting to understand Rashi? Let's not waste time. After all, Rashi was a human being like us. <laughs> That's what he said to the Khatam Sofer. The Khatam Sofer said to him, and you are a donkey. <laughs> now, 
don't have to tell you that a rabbi in the level of the Khatam Sofer, 250 years ago with his holiness, will never dare to insult a student of him that is a religious kid or man, whatever he was, in front of people and call him a donkey. This I don't even do. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> so, so the Khatam Sofer will do such thing? Obviously not. So if he did, right away you have to make your brain work to understand what's behind it. No, what's behind it? I explained. The Khatam Sofer explained. Everyone was in shock, of course, in the first few seconds. And somebody asked, Vodarav is calling his student a donkey? Right? How can it be? The Khatam Sofer said, I do not say it. Chazal say it. I only told you what Chazal said. What did Chazal say? Chazal is the sages from 2,000 years ago. The Tanaim, the Amoraim. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 112. Kuf Yud Bet Amud Bet. The Chachamim say, Im Rishonim Kamalachim. Remember, this was written close to 2,000 years ago. So they're talking about the generation before. Im Rishonim, if the Rishonim, those who lived before us, are like angels, in a level of angels, we are like human. If the Rishonim are human, we are donkeys compared to them. This is the Chachamim in the Gemara. Who each one of them can revive the dead and they call themselves donkey. Oh, but not just a donkey. Not just every donkey. Some donkeys are better than us. Which one? The donkey of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. He was a very, very educated donkey. He has a master degree in Judaism. What was special about him? His owner was such a righteous man, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. So whatever his owner did, the donkey also kept. He didn't eat something unless it was meusar. If it's stolen, he doesn't want to touch. He doesn't want to walk on Shabbat. Is Mamash better than 80% of the people I know? You know? So, we have to understand what does it mean, Im Rishonim Kemalachim, right? Or if they are like, like people, what does it mean? So, the Khatam Sofer, what he meant is, Talui, depend. Depend how you look at them. If you consider them the greatest ever live, like in a level of angels, then we have to treat you like you are a human. But if you treat them like ordinary people, we have to treat you like a donkey. That means you're brainless. If you think that someone like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai or Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai were regular people, like, the, like some of the professors you know today in the world, then you, in my opinion, much worse than a donkey. But they are very lenient here. They gave you a nice title. This is what the Khatam Sofer said to his student. Top, that wasn't the topic today. You mentioned the Barasali, so I had to say something for his honor. Rav Ben Sion Abba Shaul was hearing a lot about the Babasali, Babasali, Babasali. 
And he was a very, very deep rabbi. Everything he checked to the root of it. That was his greatness. Even on, uh, on, in his eulogy, they say, Svarato Karishonim. It was so deep that you felt like you're learning with one of the generation of the Rambam or Rashi. That's how deep he was, also by reading people. So he went one time to meet the Babasali to check if he's a real Kabbalist or not. There are two ways to learn. One is you begin to question about Kabbalah, and you see if he knows what he's talking about. But that's insulting. What, you came to test me? It's not Derech uh, Eretz. What's the other way? Watch him. Watch him, to be a detective. How do you watch a person and find out if he's a Kabbalist or not? Based on his beard? That's not the answer. In India, those who bow down to the cow, they have white beards and turbans. If I would tell you that he's a student that was in the same class with the Ben Ishchai, you will buy it. With his turban and the beard and the white the white uh, sack that they wear. It would be very, I told you once what they did in Monsi Photoshop. <laughs> you remember, <laughs> in Monsi, somebody put a picture in Monsi. <laughs> Sunday, a big Mekubal is coming to town. Put his head with the tefillin, with the talit on his head, with his beard. Everyone who wants to make appointment, please come back. What happened? Sunday arrived, everyone in town was waiting for that Mekubal. Then he took off the picture or put next to it, who was that Mekubal? Who was it? Saddam Hussein. <laughs> you know, when they caught Saddam Hussein, he had a very bushy beard after he was hiding in a pit. Remember that or no? And they, chew, they checked his teeth with the, with the light like a camel, open, open big. Remember, this is a person that was ruling tens of millions of people. They're afraid to sneeze next to him. If he was around, people could not breathe from fear. Plus, he had $40 billion in his bank account. His faucet, he had seven palaces. The faucets were made from pure gold. Who make a faucet out of pure gold? Someone that has so much money, he doesn't know what to do with that. He's, he's bored. He's sitting at home thinking, what will I do with all these billions? Everything I have for free. I don't pay for anything. And I have $40 billion, and I'm about to die in 10 years. I have to find what to do with the money. He doesn't have yeshivot to support. To do, to help some poor families. That's not on his mind, he's a monster. So what is he looking for? Sport car, jewelry, until he gets to the point that he makes his faucet from gold. You know? So what happened? The guy in the Photoshop removed his curly hair because for a long time he didn't take a haircut. Removed the curly hair, put instead filling. The beard was the same beard, with the talit on his face and the tefillin. Nobody knew it's the mass murderer machine, Saddam Hussein. That's a joke, but that's how people think. They see a beard, they see some kind of a turban or whatever. Yalla, mekubal, tzaddik. 
So what happened? You know. So Rabbenzio Nabashau went to check the Baba Sali. How do you check him? See how he eats. The real Mekubalim, when they eat, they don't just eat. It's all about doing Yehudim. Everything they do, they sanctify the name of Hashem on every transaction. When they pray, when they put filin, when they put talit, when they drink. I'll give you an example. If you go to the Kotel, right, you have uh, Rav Ades, the one who cries every morning, every day in a tefillah. Rav Ades. Rabbi Yaakov Ades. So I prayed with him a few times when I went early to the Kotel. If he drinks in the middle, he doesn't just drink. How do we drink? Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shakon Yavidvaro. That's an ordinary person. Drink and put it. What does he do? Five times. Wait. Ten times. Wait. It's all letters and all kavanot of Kabbalah. If you come to see how they pray, open their siddurs, one time uh, one Kabbalist wanted to send a siddur to a friend of mine in Monsi. He likes Kabbalah. You need a special neshama for Kabbalah. Not everyone is connecting with that. You can be a big chacham, you don't connect. You can be not such a great chacham, but you connect very well with that. It's a shorish neshama. I have a friend, he's very much into that. Everything, Benishchai, Ari, Kabbalah. So he asked me, can you bring me a Sidur? What Sidur? Sidur HaRashash, because I was thinking to myself, better I'll buy him the Sidur in Monsi than carry it. But he told me Sidur HaRashash. As soon as he told me Sidur HaRashash, Rabbi Shalom Sharabi from 250 years ago, he was the head of the Yeshiva of the Mekubalim in Betel. He came from Yaman. So I already knew you cannot find it in Monsi, right? So I went to pick it up. It was four thick books like this, four, four. You open a page, you have one line from the Tfilat Shmonaisre, pages of names of, it looks like Chinese. All kinds of letters, kabanot, kabanot. It's all very deep, secrets, all secrets. You get, your head start to spin. They say one word, they have all this kavanot. That's why they sometimes write three hours. They say a few words, kavanot, kavanot, kavanot. It's all kavanot. This, the Rashash, we have a tradition that is a Gilgul of the Ari Kadosh. It's reincarnation of the Ari Kadosh. Why the Ari Kadosh has to come back to the world? The most perfect human being can get in a higher level than him. Because when you were 38 years old, you know, all the Kabbalah of the Ari Kadosh was all written by his main student, the Marhu, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital is buried in Syria. Actually, Rav Kaduri, which was his yard site now, he was the oldest Mekubal in Israel, he went mm -hmm. to Syria to pray on his grave. They allow him, the Syrian, Israeli citizen, to go to an enemy country of an enemy, it's not that easy. But they, re they give respect to religion. The Syrian, Assad, the mass murderer who poisoned his people with gas, respects religion more than the leftists. 
the leftists in Israel, they hate religion more than Muslim, Arab, mass murderers. They give more respect to the Torah. Actually, last night, before my lecture, I met my friend, he's a doctor, Persian doctor. was born in Iran. He showed me a picture of the previous president, before Ahmadinejad. No, not Khamenei. There's Khomeini, then Khamenei, then I think now is whatever his name is. That they invited him to a synagogue in Iran, and when they took out the Torah, he came and kissed the Torah like I bet you, if you take the Torah to the Knesset, 80% of these wicked, garbage, lowlifes over there will not agree to touch the Torah and kiss it. It will be an insult to them. Tell them, come on, kiss the Torah. Your grandfather was a rabbi. Kiss it. No, no. They won't agree. Their ego. The Arab terrorists that sit in the Knesset will kiss the Torah. I put my money on it. Ahmed Tibi and the other one, the Muslim brothers, will kiss the Torah. The lefties, all these Erev Rav, they won't agree to touch the Torah. And they won't stand. They won't stand. They see some people would rise. There are some normal people there after all. They would not agree to stand. However, if you bring the Quran, they would stand. Out of respect to the Arabs, their lovers. For the Quran, if they go to a mosque, they'll take off their shoe. They take their shoes off. But if they come to a synagogue here, they would refuse to put a keeper. They would refuse to put a keeper. Don't force on me your religion. The question is, why would they respect the Quran and not their own religion? Especially when there's no doubt which religion is real and which one is an imitation. Why, why is it? Huh? The answer is, to kiss the Torah, you have resistance. If you're wicked, the Satan keeps telling you, don't be a fool. What, you're going to show now that you're becoming religious? What, you admire the religion? What, you show the religious people that you actually give respect to their book? Be careful, it's going to ruin your agenda. But the same Satan who tells you, don't be a fool, don't run to kiss the Torah, don't rise, sit in your chair, show them you don't care about them. Same Satan who talks to you in your head will tell you, come on, they take out the Holy Quran. What kind of human being you are? You have to give respect. It's all Yetzirah. How do you know Yetzirah exists? I always give you that example. You forgot? You see in many places, but I give you a proof. They made a test. They brought two women, twin, identical twin. They dressed them with the same clothes, and both of them were standing by the bar. One is married, one is single. And guys, you know how they go in are in a bar. Hi, can I buy you a drink? La la la, all this nonsense. And she said, I'm married. They put a ring on her finger. My sister is single. 70% of the men insisted to go after the married one. 
when they have the same exact woman standing right next to her, same voice, same face, same clothes, same everything, available for this guy. What does he want? The one that belongs to someone else. Why? Well, that's how it goes. No other explanation. Find a logic explanation for that. If you say the Mary is pretty, the other one is ugly. Okay, so now you have a logical explanation, right? But when they are exactly the same, can I find one difference? It shows Mamash too that looks exactly the same. Why in the world they would be attracted more to the forbidden one? The Gemara say, Mind Nuvim, Imtaku, stolen waters, water are sweeter. It's an expression. Why, when you pay for it, two dollars for that bottle, you enjoy it normally. And you stole it and put it under your jacket and got away with that, you feel lucky. Wow, I got it for free. It's not the same. So anyway, so uh, Ben Sion went and he checked uh, the Baba Sali and he said, 100%, he was doing all the Yehudim. Rabbi Tzion Abashal was really the biggest Mekubal. But he didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Why? Because his main thing in life was Halakha and Gemara and Shas and Poski. He didn't want to turn the Kabbalah into the main thing in his life. After all, when you have, a, when you have to rule a Halakha, you rule based on a Gemara or you rule based on a Zohar? Based on Kabbalah. You rule based on a Gemara. Gemara, Rishonim and Shulchan Aruch. You don't determine the halacha based on Kabbalah. If you want to be extra strict, you, you do like the Kabbalah. Why not? Do extra. That's how the Baba Sali was. That's how the Ben Ishchai was. Everything was to the highest level. So the Ariya Kadosh, when he was 38 years old, his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, when he went to sleep, he was talking in the middle of his sleep, loud. And he was standing next to him, and everything he, he said, he wrote. That's all the Kabbalah of the Ariya Kadosh. Most of that came while he was dreaming, and he saw he wished to go to the upper world. Whatever he was saying, he was writing. When he was 38 years old, very young, remember, the Ariya Kadosh was born Ashkenazi, but became Sfaradi, meaning... His name is Rav Yitzchak Luria Ashkenazi. Why they call every time you see a Sfaradi that his last name is Ashkenazi, like by the Syrian, you have a lot of them. It means the roots is Ashkenazim. It's Ashkenazim that came from Europe into Egypt or to Syria or to Lebanon. So immediately the community that wanted to refer to them, who who are you talking about? Moshe. Which Moshe? Moshe the Ashkenazi. Moshe Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi, they came from Ashkenaz. That's how it became their last name. They're all related. They came from Europe and they came to those countries. Okay. So he went to Egypt. His uncle raised him. And from there, he went to Tzfat. He lived short life. When he was 38 years old, his student begged him to teach them a secret that he knew and he said, I have no permission from heaven to teach you that secret. I'm not allowed. They didn't leave him alone. They forced him to tell them the answer to the secret to the thing. They told, he told them the secret and then he said to them, I'm very sorry to disappoint you. 
because I told you when I was not supposed to, I would leave the world. But I will ask Hashem permission to come back in the future if I will be allowed to help the generation. This was 500 years ago in Tzfat. 250 years later, another giant Mekubal was born into the world in Yemen, Rabbi Shalom Sharabi. He was a very big Mekubal and very humble. When he made Aliyah to Israel, he came to the yeshiva of the Mekubalim in, in Bet El, next to Jerusalem there, next to Ramallah. And he went there as a janitor, cleaning the place, fixing the chairs, making tea. He didn't tell them that he's a big chacham. He was very humble. What, what, how can we help you? I'm looking for a job. What? I want to be a cleaning guy. I want to clean the place. So he was walking around, serving tea, cleaning everything. Nobody knew who he is. It wasn't like today you can Google someone's ID and find out where he's from and what's his history. So every night when the rabbi used to have difficulties to answer some of the questions, he came in the morning and in his, in his books he saw the answer was written. How can it be? Who, who, who gives us these answers here? It has to be Eliyahu Navi. It has to be Elijah. Nobody knows the answers. It has to be somebody huge. Here nobody knows. And we keep getting the answer. It has to be a miracle from Hashem. But the daughter of that rabbi wasn't so naive. And she said, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, let me find out what's going on. Detective. She came one night and hid inside the synagogue all night. And what did she see? Shalom, the janitor. <laughs> He's cleaning. He looks around. Remember, there was no electric. He has a little lamp. He comes like this with a feather, dip it in ink, and write the answer. And put it in a, in a book. She comes to her father in the morning. Say, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, in your dream. You know who gives you all the answer? The cleaning guy. <laughs> the cleaning guy, he doesn't know how to read and write. You're dreaming, Dad. You don't understand. It's all him. You don't believe me? Come hide with me tonight. Both of them hid. He writes. Just when he was about to put, the rabbi jumped. Rabbi Shalom! You're making all of us commit sins every day? We're making you serve us when you're the biggest chacham here? Where is the honor of the Torah? How did you do such a thing? I resign from being the Rosh Yeshiva and officially I make you right now the Rosh Yeshiva. I say once, if something like this would happen today, what would happen? Let's describe what would happen. The Rosh Yeshiva would find out that the cleaning guy that serves him tea and cleans the bathroom is the biggest chacham on earth. He would say to him, Rabbi Shalom, where is Kvod Torah? How are you making us fail and disrespect the chacham, making you serve us? You made us make so many averot because of you. It cannot go on like this. 
tomorrow, Bezrat Hashem, I'm buying you a ticket. You're gonna go back to Yaman, to where you came from, and I'm gonna give you $20,000 that I have in the budget here. And you go and, and open yourself a yeshiva in Teman over there with the Yemenites there. And if you ever need money, send us a telegram. We're gonna send you some more money. And now it's mitzvah. I'm making you shliach. You become a Chabad shaliach. You go to Yaman and you teach Kabbalah over there. As long as you don't steal my glory over here. Right? But you saw the difference between some people today and some people back then. It was a different world. As soon as the rabbi found out that there is a bigger chacham than him, here is my seat, my chair, here is the key, the yeshiva is yours. I have a friend, we went together to yeshiva. Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave me the schut to give him few advices that made him a very famous speaker. He asked me, how, how do you get to everyone in Israel? You, you live here in America, everyone in Israel listening to your videos, how, how can it be? I told him the trick with Facebook, with this, what you should do with YouTube, get a camera, get a guy to cut your videos. Back then it was very easy with Facebook. Not for every sneeze they want a thousand dollars. Back then they, they allow your material to be spread to the people on your page. It was easy. And he took my advice and Baruch Hashem he became very famous. But the best part is that he also has a yeshiva in Israel that he teach over there. He has a yeshiva. And every time he comes to America, and he comes a lot, somebody has to be in charge of the yeshiva. So he let another friend of mine, which is a very, very good friend of mine, he's a great Talmid Chacham, he was Chevruta with Rav Yitzchak Yosef. So he let him be in charge of the yeshiva when he comes to America. And the other friend of mine that takes over, he fills in for him, is very, very sharp with his mouth, meaning he makes up gematriot, very entertaining guy. So, and so one person told him, I don't get you. You work so hard to build such a yeshiva. You have 80 guys learning here in the yeshiva. Baruch Hashem, you have a nice yeshiva. You're not afraid to let him come and be there a month when you go to America? The people may like him more than they like you. He will steal your yeshiva from you eventually. The people would say, we rather learn with him. What did he say? He said, Adraba. I would be very happy. If the people will feel that they learn better with him, and he contribute to them more than me, in a minute, I will give him the yeshiva as a gift, as long as it makes Hashem happy. So we have people like this even in this generation. Not only 300 years ago. Even today you have people like this. Why? If it makes Hashem happy, there was a very big rabbi. His name was Rav Chizkiah Medini. The Sdeh Every yeshiva he have his books. Sdeh was a regular student, ordinary, nothing bright, meaning not super sharp. A good student, that's it. Like him, he had hundreds. 
He had one enemy in the yeshiva that was very jealous with him. And he couldn't stand him, whatever the case was. And those days, there were Arab maids cleaning, you know. In Arab countries, it was all Arab maids. So there was one Arab woman cleaning the yeshiva on a daily basis. A young woman. The enemy of the of, of the Sdechemed, he came to that Arab woman, gave her an envelope with money. He said, I'm paying you, I, want, I need a favor from you. I want you to say that this Chizkia is touching you, grabbing your hand, is making you all kinds of offers, and complain to the Rosh Yeshiva that he's not a decent student, meaning he hoped that the Rosh Yeshiva will kick him out. The Arab took the money, it was a big temptation. She came to the Rosh Yeshiva, made up that lie. And the Rosh Yeshiva called him and said to him, don't think for a second that I buy it. Don't think for a second that I suspect you. I know exactly who you are. The problem is that people are talking. And it's already Chilul Hashem. To avoid Chilul Hashem, I want you to pack your stuff, move to another town for a month or two. Wait until I'll send you a message to come back. Let everyone forget about it. Then you will be able to come back one day. <coughs> he knew he's innocent, but the Rosh Yeshiva asked him to leave. He left. He went to another town. Six months later, this Arab, she started to have guilty feelings. How could I have done such a thing to an innocent man? So she started to ask around, do you know where is this guy used to be here? Oh, you mean the guy who messed around with you? No, no, just tell me where he is. I need to go and see him. She found him in another town. She knocked on his door and, he, and she said to him, I came to apologize. I will do everything you want me to do. I will go and I will confess and I will say who paid me the money. As long as you forgive me, and I only have one request, ask the rabbi not to fire me. I'm doing also tshuva. He was very happy. Finally the truth will come out. He started to pack his stuff. And what happened? As he's about to live with her, he started to think. Is it what Hashem wants me now to go back to town and people will begin to talk again and then this Arab woman will confess that it was all a lie and now everyone will start talking about again that, against that wicked crook who bribed her and it's going to be another six months of Chilul Hashem. What kind of a person does such a thing? So what's better? That I'll clean my reputation and Hashem will be upset for six more months because of the Chilul Hashem? Or that people continue to believe that I did what I did and Hashem is going to be, it will save Hashem all this aggravation. So he said to the Arab woman, I changed my mind, I'm not coming back with you. You go. Don't worry, I forgive you, you can go. And he did not want to go to create and to ignite again the Lashon Ara. And then he writes in one of his books, that after that incident, after he gave up on his honor, that day Hashem opened up his brain and from that moment 
everything he ever learned. He had a clear understanding about everything until he became one of the biggest rabbis of the last generations in the whole world. Every yeshiva he had his books, the chemin. He himself said, I was nothing special until that day, like me, I had an unlimited amount of learning. From that moment on, Hashem opened up my head. This gave me a special blessing. And I became one of the biggest servants. A moment of a sacrifice can change everything. And that leads me to the topic of tonight. The topic of tonight, as you all know, we are suffering tremendously from one massive Hilul Hashem after the other in a religious world. In what they call the Orthodox world. This kind of Chilulei Hashem you had by the Reforms and Conservative and the Secular and by the Goim every day for decades. No one is even impressed by that. They don't, they don't even bother to publish it on the news. Why? Because it's every minute, every hour, everywhere in the world that something like this happened. But among Orthodox people, it was very, very rare to find things like this. And if something like this ever happened, it was mamash a shock to the people. And unfortunately, in the last two, three years, it's becoming a pandemic. A pandemic. First lecture I gave when I came back from Israel in LA, it was about this author that writes books, that the, a lot of cases came out against him, people came and complained and he took advantage on them, did horrible things to people, married women, children, pedophile, this, that. You cannot believe this. And the world did not know what to do. They didn't know how to eat it. This is a person whose books were in every Jewish home. Americans, Israelis, in English, in Hebrew. <coughs> every kid grew up on the stories over there. Until today, actually until last night, I also thought like you that he wrote 80 books. But I just found out that almost none of the books is his. It's also a scam. Yes. He wrote between eight and 10 books with his handwriting. All the other books he paid people money to write it for him and he puts his name on them. One of the Dayanim said now that we have a question. We told people to throw his books out of the house. The question is, is eight to 10 books to throw out of the house? There's no question about it. The question is, what about the other 70 books that other rabbis wrote it? It's kosher rabbis. They wrote it, but no one knows them. No one will buy it. He puts his name on it, like, just like Armani suit. Do you really think Giorgio Armani makes the suit? You're dreaming. He goes to Mexico. Como estas, amigos? Senores, por favor, siéntate. I'm Giorgio Armani. I like your suit. I want you to make me this cut and this cut and this cut, 10,000 a month. I'll put my name on it. We'll split the profit. If you sell it as Jose Rodriguez, Best case scenario, you'll get 80 bucks for the suit. You put my name on it, it jumped to $600 wholesale. 
good for you, good for me. Same thing Trump. Trump, before he became a president, I bought a tie from him. Not that for a minute I thought that Trump actually made my tie. <laughs> he, he, someone used his name. All the towers on the West Side Highway, which I just pass from there every time I come to, Brick, to Brooklyn, all these fancy buildings, none of them Trump built. Huh? They took, the, they took the name off? The leftists don't ever let you breathe. They force their opinion on everyone. So anyway, one way or the other, Trump puts his name and they pay money for that. Oh, royalty, whatever. He's a builder himself, he's in real estate, we know that. But what do you think? He built the whole Manhattan? This tower and that one and this hotel, forget about it. He <laughs> puts his name, or he joined venture together with some builders and other companies, they raise the money and he puts his name. And he collects, and I know a lot of families like this, that they put their name, and because their name is in a project, the bank approves it. And they get 10%, 20% from whatever, kickbacks. That's how it goes. That's what we called Olama Sheker. You buy a suit, you think it's Armani, it's Rodriguez. You buy a suit, you think it's, uh, what's his name, Hugo Boss, who is it? Ahmed Mustafa from Egypt, right, from Bangladesh. That's the way the world is. By the way, 20, 23 years ago, I had a little business with one crook. One Israeli crook, before I knew he was a crook. So one time he told me, listen, I'm going to Israel for a month. I don't have where to park my car. Usually I move it, left, right, left, right. How about you have one car, take my car, use it until I come back, and in the meantime it's going to be in Monsi. I don't have to worry, anyone will break it, I get tickets. For me it was great. I just got a car for a month. Which car was it? Mercedes Jeep. SUV. They just came out that year. They just came out. Very nice car. Looks like SUV. I get in the car. I drive it one mile. I said, that's not a Mercedes. That's a scam. It drives exactly like my, uh, my uh, Dodge, Dodge minivan. I had a Chrysler, Chrysler minivan I had. She drives exactly the same. I started to ask around. They told me, yeah, you don't know. Chrysler bought Mercedes. They don't make it in Germany anymore. They make it here in America. <laughs> Mr. Jackson and Mr. Williams and Mr. whoever, all these people in America, with donuts and beer and union and lunch break. It's not Japan or Germans. A Japanese worker will die for his factory. They are perfectionists. Germans, they're mentally sick. If the car would be one millimeter crooked, they commit suicide. Hans and Josef from Berlin. They don't sleep for a month. Josef, come here. That's the last warning. What happened? 
the tire is one millimeter wider. You're done. In Japan, workers committed suicide. If the manager called them and complained, they go and kill themselves. In America, he comes with his nice belly. Yes, sir. You want something? Yeah, have a seat. No, no, I'm in a rush. Tell me what, what's the problem. You, you do not produce. What's happened with this? I'll take it to consideration. No, no, I'm, I'm serious. Talk to my lawyer. You're a racist. You don't like the color of my skin. What does it have to do with your skin now? I need production. You're disturbing me in the middle of my chocolate donut and my beer and my orange soda. You see them in the morning. 5,000 years construction in the same bridge. What? Now one day, 31 years. Now one day the construction ever finished. <laughs> 31 years to fix one. <laughs> Sometimes someone once told me how it works in America. They have budgets. So this year they give you for salt in the winter, $300 million for the state of New York or New York City, whatever the case is. You have to use the, all these big trucks that put the salt. You, ha you have to use it for the entire winter. That's your budget. Live with that. What happens if you have an easy winter like now? No snow, no nothing. You have a big problem. If you're not going to use the $300 million, Next year, they'll cut you off to 150. Why? Last year you managed with 150. That's your new budget. So you must use it. How are you going to use it? Burn it. Find what to do with that. So what do they do? Upgrade the trucks. Tear a brand new street. Just a month ago, they made that street. They tear it all apart. Make traffic. Everybody suffer for weeks. And pretend that they fix the road. And like this, they give job to all these union workers, and they burn $100 million because they worry that next year they won't get enough money. Understand how it works? Someone from inside told me that that's what they do. Welcome to the world of the righteous people <laughs> in their dreams. You understand? So anyway, Rabotai, this guy, he paid all kinds of avrechim, and they write the books. By the way, he's not the only one who does it. Even kosher people do this. Even kosher people do it. What does it mean? A student of a rabbi writes a book for him based on all the shiurim. He has all the writing and the recordings. He writes everything down. And then the rabbi goes, oh, yeah, the rabbi goes with him over it, makes some changes. And in the end, whose name is going to be on the, on the book? Not the student. It's going to be an introduction, a special thank you to the student who helped me to write the book. That's all the books of Rav Ovadia Yosef. Every other rabbi does it. The rabbi doesn't sit and type it. Someone does the job. You pay money for that. Sometimes they volunteer. Rav Ovadia Yosef, all his books was written by Rav Shitrit. Some books by other rabbis. His son, Rav Yitzchak Yosef. It's all the Avrechim in Yeshiva. They write Yalkut Yosef based on the Shiurim. The other son, Ravitz, David Yosef, is also the Avrechim. Of course, they have the final approval. Rav Ben Zion Abba Shaul, or Lezion Aleph and Bet, while he was still alive, it was written by Rav Amar, one of his main students. 
רב בן ציון אבא שאול went over the book with him one halacha after the other. After he passed they wrote part three, part four and etc. After he passed. Right? Same thing לקוטי מוהרן, ברסלב. רבי נחמן מברסלב, while he was alive, he had a student, רבי נתן. רבי נתן wrote for him לקוטי מוהרן. And then רב נחמן מברסלב passed. And then they wrote all the books after he passed. But that's the concept. So now, the question is, what's going to be with the 70 extra <coughs> books that he did not write? They are kosher. They come from a kosher source. Can you keep them in a house or no? What do you think? His name is on the, on the cover. The kids don't know the difference between him and a kosher one who wrote it. They don't know the difference. So it's the same Chilul Hashem. Now, how do you know Chilul Hashem? It goes by what people think. Maybe it goes by what Hashem thinks. Hashem knows the truth. Hashem knows this book, it's kosher. He came from a kosher source, and this person put his name on a cover, but he's really nothing to do with the book. A kosher person wrote it. So Hashem knows the book is kosher. But the question is, do we go by what Hashem knows, the ultimate truth, or we go by what the public knows? No, what do you think? How does Chilul Hashem work? 100% what the public knows. 100%. That's why you're not allowed to walk into the bathroom in McDonald's. You know you're not going to consider to buy a cheeseburger there. You know what? A few days ago, one of my students, he had to fly. He's going to get married. He wanted, he said, come on, let's go eat together half an hour, something, a sandwich, whatever. I said, okay, you know what? Let's go eat by our friend. Our friend has a little restaurant in Monsi. Oh, let's go. We went there, and there was one kid over there that is off the derech. I think he's 17 years old. <coughs> he used to be religious. Left the religion, got a smartphone, and that was the end of his neshama. Once a kid put his hand on a non-filtered smartphone, within days, sometimes within hours, his neshama is destroyed. Most of the time, it's for life. Occasionally, rarely, there are still ways to save these kids, but it's very difficult. This kid now walks around in Monsi, hearing no kippa, no shame, no nothing. If you look at the kid, and you see he's not evil. Mamash, you look at him and you feel so bad because he's not one of these proud, arrogant kids that sometimes you see here on the streets of Brooklyn. It's not the, not the same. So what did, I, what did I do? I started to hug him, to give him compliments, to make him feel important. So he likes me already. Because remember, these people have a lot of resentment to religion. Who knows what happened to him? I don't know the story. So he comes to me, and he said to me, Rabbi, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I went to McDonald's today and I ate a cheeseburger. I regret it. Do I have to say now Birkat Amazon or no? <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> if you want to eat now cheeseburger in McDonald's, do you say bracha on it or no? Huh? 
Why not? That's like making fun at Hashem, right? It's like someone who comes, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech haolam, Asher kidashanu vemitzvotav etzivanu lechol chazir. Definitely gonna get a huge punishment for this chutzpah, right? But over here he doesn't say the word Asher kidashanu vemitzvotav. So it doesn't really lie. He said, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech haolam, Borei mine mezonot. Hashem met kosher mezonot, and not kosher mezonot. Kosher meat and not kosher meat. The goyim are allowed to eat it. It's a blessing to them. It, it revives them. So why, why not to say bracha? It's not a lie. Huh? If you, if you drink non-kosher juice now, non-kosher, and you say, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Sha'akol Nia B'Dvarot. You say, lie? Everything is happened with the, with the word of Hashem. What is the problem of making bracha? That's question number one. Question number two, after you got full, the Torah says, V'achalta v'savata, u'verachta et Hashem Elokecha. You have to bless Hashem for the food. Al ha'aretz asher natan lach. Right? So the question is, you ate? Yes. Did you, be, did you get full? Yes. So why shouldn't you make a bracha? So right away, as usual, there was a big argument in the table. The owner of the restaurant, the boy, the guy who's going to get married, and me, and we put another rabbi on the line. The whole debate now. What's the answer? I asked my own rabbi that. I asked Farajon. I asked him, what, what's the case? He told me he has to say Birkat Amazon for the bread. If he would only eat the burger, which is taref or nevela, then he wouldn't have to say bracha. But the bread, mistama was kosher, he said. Because what ingredients the bread had? Flour, salt, sugar, yeast, all kosher ingredients. Wheat, barley, all natural. Of course, lechatchila, we don't dare to buy bread that doesn't have a certificate, kashrut, or anything like that. You never know. There's always out of the ordinary things. They can put wine in it. Who knows what they put in it? Oil that is, is not kosher. Yeah, there could be different things. But usually, when I was in Istanbul, they served the breakfast, and one of the people came to me, it's in a synagogue, whisper in my ear, Rabbi, don't touch the bread. <laughs> breakfast with a lot of cheese and olives and Turkish coffee and eggs without bread. You might as well starve. <laughs> I said, why? What's the problem? Say they got it from the Muslims. <coughs> There's no kosher bread in Turkey. There's no kosher supermarket in Turkey. No kosher restaurant in Turkey. Now, one source of kosher food you don't have in the entire Turkey. Istanbul, that's where all the Jews are. Some are in Izmir. When I was in Istanbul, I spoke in uh, Asia, and the next day in Europe. <laughs> or the same day. No, the next day. Why? Istanbul is half and half. Half of Istanbul is in Europe, half of Istanbul is in Asia. 
So they told me, Rabbi, you just went from two continents to give two lectures in 24 hours. But in a shul, this was a shul where the Arab put bombs, blow up the place many years ago. So the, the entire backyard is covered with a glass, anti-explosive glass, very thick glass. And you see, from the glass you have trees, very, very thin and very tall. Over a hundred uh, feet each tree, very thin, and they made a hole in the glass, special design to go around the trees. So I asked the Turkish guy, why did you need all this headache to design the glass like this and make a special circle that the trees will go, why don't you just chop the tree and get rid of the tree? So you're crazy, it's dead penalty over here. Either he kill you or you go to prison for the rest of your life for chopping an old tree. It's ancient trees. You want to chop the head of a Jew? No problem. You want to chop a tree? Death penalty. Why not? Jews worth less than a tree. That's the world we live in. Anyway, so I told me don't buy, don't eat the bread. Why? comes from the bakery of the Muslims. I said, so how come all these people eat here? It's religious people in the synagogue coming to Shachrit praying. Technically it's kosher, he said. Why do you think they put in it? Flour, this, that, this. That's it. That's, that's the pita bread they sell. But they don't have kashrut like you used to in New York. Over here it's turkey. So I asked them, how do you eat all the other food? Where do you have all these cold cuts from? Fish, this. They go to Israel in a special flight. Husband and wife, each one of them take two big suitcases, empty, fill them up with all the food that they buy in the supermarket in Israel, and the same day catch a flight back and fly back. And a month later, the same story. They go, bring food. That's a sacrifice. And then you have people in Flatbush, Rabbi, it's hard for me to keep kosher. It's not, it's not always comfortable. You understand what's going on here or no? Anyway, Rabotai, so the Chilul Hashem goes on what the people think, not what the reality is. And I once told you a famous uh, question that somebody asked Rav Yashiv. It was a Baal Tshuva, a, text, a, a truck driver. He cannot find a job for a year. No job. Finally, he found two jobs, but he doesn't know which one to take. One is to drive the secular lefty newspaper in Israel to the, when they deliver it to all the stores. He's only the driver. He doesn't touch the newspapers. They are in the back. They throw it by the stores. He's only the driver, but he has the logo of that, uh, the, that secular newspaper. Eh, or to drive pork meat. Israel is flooded with Russian goyim and they love pork very much. All day they love to eat pork. Uh, open hundreds of stores. They sell rabbits and pork. They love it very much. So there is a big picture of a pig on a truck with words in Russian. And he's a religious guy with a beard and a black yarmulke. 
<laughs> he's driving, he's, stand, he's standing at the light now. Every car who passes by, see the picture of the pig? By the way, the pigs, even the Arabs hate it. They don't eat chazir. Chanzir, they say. Chanzir. Chanzir. I have a Syrian friend here, American Syrian, here in Flatbush. So he said to me, Yosef, this guy is such a Chanzir. I thought he doesn't speak Hebrew, he doesn't know, he's American. He keeps saying Chanzir, and I say Chazir, but he keeps saying Chanzir. I said, why you say Chanzir? Chanzir. Then I found out that in Arabic, <laughs> it's Chanzir. They pushed the noon into it. I don't know why. Anyway, Rabotai, so he asked Rav Eliashiv, what's better? This or that? Rav Eliashiv said to him, better to drive the secular newspaper, even though it's a much bigger scene to read that newspaper than to eat pork. Much, much, much bigger scene, because when you eat pork, it's one scene. When you read, a, when you go in the pages of the newspaper, you have 500 scenes. In the same amount of time that you eat this steak of uh, pork, you can make 500 scenes from the Torah by looking at this secular newspaper. Kfira, heresy, lack of modesty, all kinds of things, disrespect Chachamim, making fun of Judaism, everything you can imagine with this leftist. So Rav Eliashiv told him, even though that's a much worse to drive the newspaper, but in the eyes of the Israelis here that are totally ignorant, they don't see anything is wrong driving the secular newspaper. But everybody knows to drive the pork into the store by a religious man. It's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. So don't do it. It's Chilul Hashem. Don't do it. It's Chilul Hashem. Same thing with the religious newspapers. No difference. They're also secular. All religious newspapers are all secular. Don't ever believe this nonsense when they tell you Yeshiva, Shabbat, uh, whatever the names that they find. It's a trick. It's like the, like the, like the pig. The pig puts his legs forward. Look at me, I'm kosher. I have split hooves. That's what the Gemara say. Like Esav came to Yitzchak, Dad, what's up, Dad? How are you doing? What? How do I give myself from the salt? What a tzaddik. Better than the Baba Sali. You don't need to give myself from the salt. But he's such a machmir, Esav. Wow, fanatic. Hey, Esav, don't be so fanatic. You don't have to give myself from the salt. So now, Rabotai. Right now in Israel, there's a, there's a big argument about this sofer. Some people say that the way the Beddin in Tzfat handled his case was not professional. I heard each one of the three Dayanim from Tzfat, each one of them. They said that they kept sending him invitation, begging him to come. There's accumulation of cases against him by children, women, husbands who had to divorce their wives because once a married wife cheated on her husband, she's forbidden to her husband. 
and there is a long line of victims that are waiting to confront him, and he refused to come. They kept telling him, come, come. Not only he doesn't come, he threatened them. He sent people to threaten them, I'm going to publish this against you, I'm going to do this against you, all kinds of things. What happened? In the meantime, a secular lefty newspapers published it already. They did a research. Of course, they're not reliable. Secular newspapers, and again, religious newspapers are just as bad. Do not ever think that they are kosher newspapers and not kosher. They're all trefot. They're all mass murder machines. They're all spread heresy. They all spread lack of modesty. They all spread things that is against Hashem's will. All of them. Maybe the secular newspaper does it more in quantity. But either one, once you bring it into your house, you go against Hashem. You should know that. So what happened over there? They say that uh, it's not fair what happened here. He never came to court, to Jewish court. Why all of a sudden now the whole world knows that he did this and he did that? So I want to start from the end to the beginning. Before we go into all the allegations against him and the children who describe and women and one woman just committed suicide because she saw that 3,000 people went to his funeral, she went crazy. So after what he did to me, destroyed my life. They coming to his funeral, people with beard and black hats, and they call him rabbi? I can't take this hypocrisy. She killed herself. Now they say, no, she didn't kill herself because of him. You know, it's like with the vaccine. This argument will never end. In 20 years from now, there will... One person told me, you know why they're angry? Because some of them are racist. I said, what's the connection? He said, all three Dayanim were Sfaradim. Since when three Dayanim Sfaradim prosecute an Ashkenazi Litai like this, the hero of all the Ashkenazim? Do you think they're going to let it, these racist people? So all you need that 5% of the people are racist and they find out that the Bedin was Sfaradi, that's it. They refuse to accept it. Especially when one of the Dayanim was national religious, Dati Leumi, with a needed white yarmulke. Oh, 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 oh. Tzioini, forget about it. The son of Rav Mordechai Eliyahu. But after you hear Rav Yarchi, after he gave a whole speech in Musayof, explaining all the details of everything. So you can see that this is three tzaddikim, Talmidei Chachamim, Dayanim. This bedding was made specially for sexual scandals. Something that most Batedin don't want to deal with. Don't want to deal with that. It's a very sensitive topic. One way or the other, I'm not here to be a fourth Dayan. I wasn't there. I didn't see these witnesses. I do not know more than what we heard everywhere. But one thing I do know, that when a person commits suicide, that's a final stamp that is wicked. Unless he was mentally sick. Schizophrenic, deeply bipolar, in very deep depression, or months he didn't talk. Things like this, or Chas Shalom, a woman that someone wanted to rape her and she killed herself to avoid that incident. 
or someone that was about to be tortured, they're about to chop your fingers off or to pull your nails out or to poke your eyes or something like that and you jump into the fire and scream Shema Israel and kill yourself like Shaul did in a war, King's Saul, when he knew he was about to fall in the end of the Philistines after they killed his sons. He knew that they're going to torture him in such massive torture that he, did, he couldn't take the pain and he killed himself. Those are the exception to the rules. If you fall in the end of the Hamas and you know they're about to take you to inter interrogation room and about to torture you with electric shots and drown you with water like they do to prisoners and all kinds of things and you had an opportunity to take someone's knife and kill yourself, those are not included in what, about, what I'm about to teach. This is an exception to the rule. These people are now wicked. A woman that jumped into the water because she knew someone is about to do horrible things to her, she's now wicked, she's righteous. The Gemara have 400 kids that the Roman capture, they put them on a boat and send them to Toromi for prostitution, boys and girls. And they all say Shema Israel and jumped into the water and drowned. Why? They rather die than to become prostitutes. Those are holy heroes. Every fool understands that. That they're willing to give their life, not chas v'shalom, to, uh, to, to become prostitute. Obviously, we're not talking about this. It's called me'abed atzmoladat. Someone that kill himself with a clear mind. Sadness? Yes. Lost a lot of money? Yes. Your girlfriend lost you? Yes. Your son went off the derech? Yes. There's a lot of disturbing things in life. Thousands in a lifetime. Divorce, ugly divorce, uh, all kinds of things like that. Your partner stole your money, the government wants to put you in jail, FBI caught you. There's a lot of reasons to kill yourself. None of them is legit. Include shame. Shame is actually the best cleanup for the mess you made. If you did such horrible things, and now the whole world found out about you. The Gemara say, "Kol amichalel shem shamayim baseter nifraim imeno bagalui." Everyone who covers his crimes and do chilul Hashem hiddenly, when Hashem will expose him, it will be for the whole world to see. So Hashem exposed him. That's it. More and more people came. He couldn't handle the shame, so he wrote a letter. In the letter he said, I'm going up to Shamayim, to heaven, and I will invite the judges, the Dayanim, the Dayanim, I will invite them to the court of heaven. Maybe he thought for a second that he's Rabbi Akiva, maybe he thought he's the Rambam, I don't know, maybe he thought he's the Baba Sali. Rav Shmuel Eliyahu say, heaven? In a billion years, you won't ever see heaven. You won't even see hell. Hell, it's a clean-up for the soul one step before you go to heaven. It's very painful, but it's cleaning. You will never even make it to hell. All you're going to have is kafa kela. That's what he said. He lives in a dream that he thinks that Hashem is waiting for him with his arm open. Come, my son. Come get your reward for destroying hundreds of lives and families. Come over. Anyway, so what did he do? 
two years before that his son died from cancer, 28 years old. His miserable son, religious kid, was married, had cancer, what can you do? People get cancer and die young sometimes, unfortunately. So he was already depressed for two years because of the death of his son, which is perfectly, makes sense. Where did he go to shut himself in the head? On the grave of his son. Why? Manipulation. To make everyone feel guilty. Never ever took responsibility. The rabbis begged him. Sir Kram, we're not after you. We are not here to destroy you. We are not looking to punish you. All three of them say in their interview, we want to help you to do tshuva. You're obviously sick and we can help you to get the right treatment. How do you know if a person is just des has desire for sexual sins or that he's mentally sick? After all, he does the same sins. Here it's a sin from the Torah and here. How do you know that a person is sick? Everyone who has desire for women or desire to be gay is sick? The question is, when do you define that as already a mental disease? The answer is that everything that you do against the law of nature, it's an indication that you're mentally sick. Like why Hashem made the human being straight. Hashem asata adam yashar. When a person begins to do strange things against the laws of nature, then you know it's not normal. It's not normal. The norma is this, and that's not normal. So for instance, if a person wants to make a scene because he doesn't have a girl, he's already two, three years without relationship, and he wants to go and make a scene. So he finds himself some woman and make a scene with her, and that's over. He did a scene, now he has a, in his file, he committed a sin against Hashem. That's it. Did he take advantage on that woman? No. Did he destroy their love? No. She agreed to do the sin with him. So she cooperated with that. Either he paid her money or she, they just became friends. One way or the other, he didn't put a gun to her head. He didn't destroy her. He did not destroy her marriage. He did not destroy her future. She's not a little girl or a little boy. It was both sides agreed to participate in a scene, every one of them will get what they deserve and it's over. You understand that part? So when you have that option to go make scenes with a person that are willing to do the scene with you and they're not going to be destroyed now mentally for the rest of their life and instead of doing that you go and take a nine years old boy or a girl 12 years old and destroy their future and forcing her to do the scene or a married woman forcing her to commit the sin with you by threatening her that if she would not agree you will publish all her secrets to the world. Remember, he was a therapist. That's how he, he hunt his victims. Therapist. So a married woman come to cry to him about her past. Everybody has secrets about his past. So she comes, something bothers her. She never told it to her husband. Something about her child, something about what her father did to her, something about what someone did to her when she was a little girl. You know how it is, therapists. They take care of people that have stress and problems. So after he finds out the secrets of all these kids or girls or married women, was used against them to blackmail them. If you will ever tell, 
I will publish all your secrets and none of your children will ever get married. And now she's a hostage. Do you ever understand what's going on here? They say that according to their estimate, we're talking about hundreds of cases in the last 25 years. So far, 22 people came forward. You know, people are embarrassed to come, especially religious people. They don't come on the news and say, oh, I was taken advantage by this guy. It doesn't happen. It destroys their life. If the community find out, they look at the victim as someone who was, a, who was defected. All her friends would leave her. If, she come, if her names, if one of the 22 names that came to the bed dean or spoke to the bed dean or that they heard the recording, if their name will come up on the news, their life is over. Nobody will want to marry their children. Why? What did she have to do, this girl? Her mother was raped by this low life. We don't want anything to do with this family. That's the way people are. It's a very big risk to come forward, especially when he was alive. If you're going to make one mistake and go to the police, the next thing is going to be all over the newspapers or in the internet. All you have to do is to make a fake number and start publishing it. And that's the end of her, or the end of him. So Abotai, again, I wasn't in a bedin. This is, let's take it as allegations. As uh, we don't know, we, only Hashem knows what exactly happened. But one thing we do know, that a person plenty suicide. It wasn't a heat of a moment that you just found out you lost $10 million and at that second you jump from the window. If we will hold you for two hours, you wouldn't jump. That second it hit you so bad, you lost your mind. It's temporary insanity. And you killed yourself or whatever happened. Or you killed someone. And that also can happen. The, the Gemara asks if a person lost his sanity on Passover night. He lost his mental, his normal mental state. He's crazy right now. Crazy. And he ate matzah. When he came back to sanity, he's normal now. He's back to himself. You okay? You okay? What happened? I don't know. I had an attack. The matzah that he ate when he was crazy for an hour or two, does it count as mitzvah? Or crazy people, since they're not obligated to keep mitzvot, it doesn't count. Now he's normal. Now he has the obligation to do it because you have to know what you're doing. And when you're in the, mental or in the middle of an attack, it doesn't count. It doesn't count that you did the mitzvah, because you don't even remember what you did. Right? The answer, lo yatsali dechova. He has to repeat the mitzvah. Eat matzah again. Why? Ulo yatsali dechova. I want to read to you, Rabotai, with your permission, what the halacha talks about. Not only him. We're not talking only him. We just use it as an example. What the halacha requires to do with people that commit suicide. People that leave the ladder, that means they're normal, they think about it, they plan it, they say, I'm going to meet someone, they take a gun, they go to the cemetery, they have all the time to think about it. That's a planned suicide. Not that you lost your mind. Yes, you have shame, yes. You have anger, yes. You have a huge embarrassment, yes. You lost desire to live, yes, but you still don't have permission to kill yourself. Killing yourself makes your problem a thousand times worse. 
it's not solving any problem. The problem only becomes a lot worse, and you're going to understand that in a second when I read it to you. I made myself a few notes just to read it tonight that people will, those who are depressed and those who are considering this option, will never ever think about it ever again. So let's see. Judaism, life is holy. Just living, it's a holy thing. Life is very important. It's so important that if life is in danger, you're allowed to break the eternal covenant between the Jewish nation and God, which is Shabbat. That's what makes you Jewish. If you're Mechalel Shabbat, you exclude yourself. Don't try again. <laughs> it's enough one time you are Mechalel Shabbat. Please don't try again. So if you are Mechalel Shabbat, okay, you exclude yourself from Judaism. That means that when you die, they have to bury you like they bury a non-Jew. They make, have to make a fence between the Shomer Shabbat Jews to those who did not Shomer Shabbat. Why? Because they cannot bury them together. If a, a Mechalel Shabbat is testifying in a court, you're not allowed to accept his testimony. Why? Because <coughs> he's not considered Jewish. If he made Kiddush, you still have to repeat the Kiddush. It doesn't count like you did Kiddush, because he is like, non, like a non-Jew. There are many, many rules that applies to non-Jews, apply to a Jew that is Mechalel Shabbat. The only difference between a non-Jew and a Mechalel Shabbat is that a non-Jew, if he decides to keep Shabbat, it doesn't make him Jewish. If the Jew decides to make tshuva and to start keeping Shabbat, he doesn't need conversion. That's the only difference. Immediately he became a tzaddik. Was wicked, did, uh, repented, and now he's a tzaddik. That's it. Fixed his mistake. So if your life is in danger, even one to a thousand chance. Like you have fever. Fever, 102, 103, 104. What? How many people that have fever die? One out of 10,000? One out of 50,000? I don't know, ask the doctors. But you understand that most fever do not end with death. But there is a minor chance to die. You break Shabbat. We cannot take any tiny risk to jeopardize the life of a human being. So you break Shabbat temporarily until the risk is over, meaning you got him into the hospital, that's it. There's nothing else you can do. Now you must keep Shabbat. Temporarily, you put Shabbat on all to save life. That's why when a woman has to give birth, if you're going to tell her, wait until tomorrow night. Uh, darling, I think my water broke. It's your problem. <laughs> Next time, wait another 24 hours. What do you mean? I have to go to the hospital. Ah, I have contractions. Ah! <laughs> Shh, take Advil, come down, lay down. 
What do you think, I'm going to start the car for you? That's a fool, obviously. I have to start the car, call Atzala, and take her to the hospital. Why? It's a life risk. Life risk of her, and also life risk of the baby. So we know, we understand, it's written, Betzelem Elokim Nivra Adam. A person was created in the image of God. Which image? Not physical image. Make no mistake, we're not talking about the physical image, because one of the 13 principles of Judaism, that Hashem does not have a physical image. And you're not allowed to imagine Him in any shape or form or color. So we are talking about spiritual image, meaning the spirituality, just like Hashem is eternal, our soul is eternal. So, the Gemara in Masechet Begitin, page 57, left side of the page, the Gemara say that children that were captured in the time of the destruction of the temple by the Roman obviously understood where they're taking them, as I said before, and they ask the great Tana in the Gemara, they ask him, the Rabbi, if they will kill themselves before, before going with the Romans to Chaz Shalom, where they want to take them, will they have a share to the world to come? From this Gemara we understand that someone who kill himself normally, without Romans or without a gun to the head, just kill themselves, have no share to the world to come. You understand why, right? Because the Gemara said that the question now is, we want to kill ourselves not because we want to kill ourselves, because we have no choice. What? We don't want to become prostitute. So we are going to sacrifice our life not to fall in the hand of these Romans in Romy. Will we have Olam Abba or we are like other people that kill themselves that do lose their share to the world to come? So that's an exception to the rule. Right? There are three scenes that a person has to die and not to agree to commit. So a guy comes with a knife to your neck. <coughs> Do the eat pork or I kill you. You have to eat pork. Throw the Torah on the floor or I kill you. Throw the Torah on the floor. Break Shabbat, light a cigarette on Shabbat or I kill you. You light a cigarette. <coughs> and almost anything you can imagine you have to do. Except three. <coughs> three things you're not allowed to do. One is to bow down to an idol or to JC or to bring a Christian missionary into your shul to talk to your community. You have to die and not agree to do such thing. And by the way, you should know, you should know, in case you didn't know, that uh, that the Gemara, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 75. The Gemara said, Alome davar echad min magosh. What's magosh? Min, a wicked apicores, infidel. Someone heretic. 
who pull people attention to idol worshipping. Come see Buddha, come see JC, come listening to a pastor in my shul, come listening to a Christian missionary who wants to come speak. Motivational speaker, right? From that moment on, you're not allowed to learn Torah from him ever again. And anyone who would learn Torah from someone who persuade you to follow Avodah Zarah, which is Christianity, that's among all the Avodah Zarah in the world, Chayav Mita has to be put to death. Someone that learn from Jews from JC, Orthodox, rabbis that brings Christian into their synagogue to teach the Jewish community. All kinds of missionaries, some of them are from a Jewish mother. Like this crazy lunatic who came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I don't know if you saw that video. He said, I saw the light. I'm Christian now. I'm a Jew for JC. Whatever. The Lubavitcher Rebbe told him, you, you didn't see the light. You're crazy. <laughs> He kept telling him, you're Meshuga, you're Meshuga, you're Majnun, you're crazy. <laughs> By the way, in the end, he brought him back to that conversation. He gave the Rebbe, look how stupid people are. He's following now Christianity. He comes to one of the most important rabbis in the world, and what does he do? He gives him a book about Christianity and JC. And what did the Rebbe did? <laughs> I don't remember if it was in his face or after he left. Either way, within a second, he threw it to the garbage. But he attacked him. Knew nothing. You're sick. You're crazy. You need a treatment. Sometimes when you attack a person directly like that, that's the only thing that can save him. There's no time for political correctness. So Rabotai will go back to what I started to explain. So the kids ask the rabbi, Rabbi, <coughs> if we kill ourselves to get safe from prostitution, will we have a shot to the world to come? Three things you have to die and not to agree to do. One, if they tell you kill someone else, if now we kill you and Allah to kill him. Bow down to an idol, spread idol worshipping, uh, teach idol worshipping, anything like that with Avodah Zarah, you have to die and not to agree to do. And if he tells you do gilui arayot, the forbidden sexual crimes in the Torah that have a cut punishment for the soul, nichreta nefesh, you're not allowed to do it. You have to die and not to agree to do it. For instance, even if he comes and say to you, have relationship with a gay man, if not, will kill you. You have to die and not to agree. To die and not to agree to do such things. So Rabotai, what do we see over here? Every other thing in life, you have to break the law in order for you to stay alive, not to die. So now let's see what the halacha is saying about someone that committed suicide. Let's see.
If a person gave up, it is still not allowed to give up on life. The life does not belong to a person. The Rambam, in the laws of mourning, Ilchot Evel, chapter 1, provision 11. This is what the Rambam writes. That's the ruling also in Shulchan Aruch. Hameabed Atzmoladad. Someone that committed suicide after he actually planned this suicide. Not in the heat of the moment or in deep depression or anything like that. And mitablim alav. You do not mourn for him. You don't mourn. Ven maspidim oto. You don't say any eulogy on him. But... You stand in a line like they used to do. Say all this special blessing that you say when someone died. Why? Because you don't really say it for him, you say it for his relatives. To comfort them. How severe is this thing? You do not mourn and you do not say eulogy for someone that killed himself. Completely, Rabotai. Today, what was done with him, not only they mourned him, not only they say eulogy for him, who did it? People that call themselves rabbis. How can it be? What happened to the law? Why the heart again wins the brain all the time? What kind of Talmidei Chachamim let the heart always take over the brain. That's not supposed to happen to Ben Torah. Ben Torah can never let his heart dominate the brain. You're not a little child and you're not a woman. Women are extra sensitive. You play with her emotion, she begins to cry, she can't help it, she's a woman. Hashem made her like this. So if she has a conflict between her brain and her heart, usually we know how it's going to end. The heart plays a very, very strong role by women and children. It's the nature of the world. It's not an embarrassment. That's the way she made them. But if you are a man and a Ben Torah, it should never happen to you even once in your life. The brain must be dominant. If the halacha say that someone that killed himself, you're not allowed to mourn, you're not allowed to mourn for him. You're not allowed to say eulogy for him. You don't say eulogy for him. You don't begin to be a lawyer and to give all excuses why that's not a regular committing suicide. It's not a regular suicide. What, what kind of an excuse is that? The man planned the suicide? Yes. He did it right away? No. When he realized that everything is closing on him, and he has to come to Bedin. Ah, oh, one detail I forgot. They say to him, you do not want to come to us? Why? We're not good enough of judges? We're not big Talmidei Chachamim? We're not sitting eight years in this court every day and ruling in many different cases? You do not trust us? Bring your rabbi with you. Bring anyone you want. Bring, come with him. When he saw they agreed to his terms, that's when he got stuck. What am I going to do now? Until now I was 
stretching and stretching, ran out of excuses. That's when he went a few hours later and killed himself. The rabbis kept telling him, we do not want to bury you. We want to help you out. Come and do tshuva. That's it. We're not putting you in jail. We're not turning you to the police. We're not here to charge you for money and penalty and compensation. All we want is you confess, repent, ask forgiveness for him from your victims, take time out, go sit and learn Torah, lower your profile, and slowly, slowly, when Hashem helps, you're going you're gonna to fix what you did. And the Vara Omed Bifnea Tshuva. Is it not fair? <laughs> I don't get it. Where would you find? If it would be in the court of New York, <laughs> you would get the electric chair. Not in New York. The, the Libras won't give you an electric chair. Texas. Texas, right away. You heard what happened in Texas? You saw the video? Fish fell from the sky. <laughs> Fish and frogs fell from the sky. It's unbelievable how everything that happens to the world relates to the subject of the parasha. <laughs> Where else in the year you're going to see fish falling from the sky or frogs? In a parasha that speaks about Makat Svardea and the blood in the Nile. Rabotai, conclusion. Conclusion, people that committed suicide, even Kaddish does not help them. They don't have a shirt to the world to come, and Hashem is judging them as murderers. I'm a murderer? Who did I ever kill? I never killed a mosquito. I never killed a mosquito. I'm a murderer? I could not kill anyone. Yes, you killed yourself. Ah, myself, it's a different story. What do you mean, yourself? Your life is not in your hand. It belongs to me. I give you life. I determine where to shut the plug. Not you. Every second you live, it's mercy of me. It's, it's a free gift. I'm allowing you to make it another, another day and another day. We do not know when it's going to end. Hashem never tells us you live until that date. Nobody knows when he's going to die. Therefore, every second you live, it's a free gift. In the end, you're going to get a bill for what you did right or wrong. Why do we say Hallel in Rosh Chodesh? They ask Rav Victor Miller, Zatzal. In holidays, we understand Passover, Exodus of Egypt, Hallel, we sing to Hashem. Sukkot, Exodus of Egypt, Hashem put us in a Sukkot, we sing to Hashem. Hanukkah, huge miracle, we sing to Hashem. Shavuot, we got the Torah, we sing to Hashem. Rosh Chodesh, what exactly happened? That we need to do Hallel. Did you ever think about it? Huh? We have a group, every Rosh Chodesh, we make a huge, big deal of it. Benji came a few times, he can tell you. We bring a band, great food. Lots of people coming, do it in nice places, in summer, in nature, on a boat, in nice forest. They find all these people from Englewood and Great Neck and they know how to find the best places to do these things. They have sometimes big mansions with a pool, so next to the pool, much interesting. And they bring a guy, he plays a violin and guitar and flute, whatever, and a great singer. 
all these famous people, and then there's a meal, and I come and I give the Torah, every month in a different place. When they started it, I was thinking to myself, how they admire Rosh Chodesh so much that they're willing to pay thousands of dollars every month for the band, and thousands of dollars for all the locks and all the great whiskey and the great <laughs> food that they bring. And sometimes they take a boat, they pay like, I think, eight or six thousand dollars just for the boat. A go, boat goes on the Hudson River it, uh, without the nets at five in the morning, six in the morning, you see the sunrise. It's beautiful. All of that for Rosh Chodesh? But of course, I would never tell them anything because they all get very inspired from the Halal. 40 minutes with music and dancing, 100 people around, you know, it's unbelievable. Better than a wedding. Until I saw the answer of Rav Avigdor Miller. Why do you say Halel and Rosh Chodesh? To thank Hashem that He gave us one more month of life. Take it for granted? You take it for granted? You finished another month. That's the reason. You have to sing. You have to thank Hashem for every breath you take. There is, there is even a song about it. Every breath you take, you have to praise Hashem. Right? Right or wrong? Kol neshima v'neshima. Kol neshama te'alelia. Hallelujah. Rabotai, Hashem sent Moshe to Paro. Moshe finds excuses for one week. I can't go. I can't go. My brother Aaron will be offended. He's three years older. I'm stuttering. Why, Hashem, are you going to send me to speak to the strongest king in the world? Why to embarrass your reputation? Why sending me? Look at my speech. I cannot speak clear. Send someone charismatic, someone that hypnotizes the people, looks good, sounds great, sharp. Well, you're sending me from all the people in the world. I'm going to speak in front of Paro, I'm going to mumble things, I'm going to get stuck. Why did Hashem answer him? I want to ask you a question. You don't know, what do you think? Moshe didn't know that speech is in, a, in the hand of Hashem? I know it, David know it, and even Benji knows it. Right, Benji? You know it or no? You trust that everything comes from your mouth is with Hashem helps? 100%, right? So if a person that stuttered, Hashem comes to him and says, I want to go, I want you to go and speak to Sleepy Joe. Logically, you would say, why me? I can barely speak. I'm, I'm stuttering. But if Hashem send me, I'm not worried. I'm in the good hands. And especially knowing that the reason I'm stuttering, it's Hashem. And if He wants me not to stutter, it's Hashem. I know it. He knows it. Every one of you knows it. Moshe didn't know it. 
What happened? Moshe Vlakov Emuna? Now, Rabotai, it's time to understand the Torah correctly. Moshe did not have a second, a second, for a second he didn't have a fear that when he stands in front of Paro he will be stuck with his words. Because Hashem never does half a job. He doesn't do 50% and get you stuck there. So what was Moshe fearful? What was he fearing? The answer is, Rabotai, Moshe was afraid that Paro will not take him serious because how can it be from all the people in the world who did Hashem send? Moshe! But we just said that when Moshe came to Paro, he will speak fluently with charisma because now he's in a mission from Hashem. So what is he afraid? Paro knows Moshe from before. He raised him in the house. He knows he's stuttering. As soon as he sees him, ah, come on. From all the people in the world, you got sent someone like you? You expect me to buy it? Get out of here, you liar. You and I understand that, but when you deal with an infidel like this, that's not my idea, by the way. Of course you know that. Who say it? Baal <coughs> Ptachia. That's one of the Chachamim. He brings it out. He said, because Paro knows that Moshe doesn't speak clear, Paro will not believe that Moshe was nominated to be the savior. When Moshe was a little child, Paro used to hold him. Chamudi, so sweet. Aaron also not stutter? Aaron? No. No, Aaron was, they say Aaron would be your mouth. Listen carefully. Paro raised Moshe. Oh, such a cute baby. Come here. Come, come, give him something. No. So he raised him. So what happened? Moshe grabbed his crown and took it off his head. Wow. All the Egyptian advisor went crazy. That's a sign. <laughs> that we're going to have problem with this Jewish kid. Moshe put it on his head. Little kid. The Khartoumim say to Paro, we are very afraid that that's the kid that we were all be, were afraid of that will save the Jewish nation. So we, we suggest that you get rid of him now. Kill him. Burn him. Who saved him? Who saved him? Itro. What was his reward? He became his son-in-law. I remember once I told you a story that I spoke in Queens. I used to speak in a kindergarten in, in, uh, at night when the kids are in, in, in their bed. In the same place, we used to make lecture for adults. Yeah, who was organizing it? The tzaddik Shama and his wife. In kindergarten, it's a chain of kindergarten and it belongs to her mother. So they say, why, why, we have the place at night, let's, let's do a lecture. They invited a lot of American guys and girls. I gave a lecture about proofs, all these things. 
No, actually, first time I spoke there, and the second time I brought my laptop, but the first time there was a redhead girl, 20 years old. Her parents came from Russia to America, and she's American already. She came here, she was a little kid, but she grew up American. And they were so poor, they came from Russia with no money. They wanted to put her in yeshiva, but they couldn't afford the prices of yeshiva. So one person told them, why don't you go, there's a Russian organization, they collect money from wealthy Russian, and they help poor Russian to put their kids in yeshiva. That's how she went to yeshiva. Now she comes to me, she's 20 years old, after my first lecture, Rabbi, I know you from Monsi, and you from the yeshiva, maybe you know a great learner that loves Torah and wants to learn all his life. That's what I'm looking for. Only someone that learns. I don't care about the job, money. Do you have anyone do you think is good, would be good for me? I say, listen, write down your information. If I think something is going to be good for you, I'll let you know. Write down on a piece of paper. Talk. She wrote all your information. Maybe three months later, something approximately plus minus, they invited me again, I went. Now I bought my laptop, projector. As I'm connecting the wires, I see that all the friends were there except that girl. The only one who spoke to me after the lecture, she was not there, but everybody else was there. So as I'm connecting the wires, I, I say to her, oh, I see uh, your, your friend that wanted Shiduch, she didn't come this time. She said, oh yes, you know why she didn't come? She just got married. I said, wow, Baruch Hashem, so fast. Only three months. She said to me, you want to hear how she got married? How she got married? She went on a date a few times, <laughs> like the guy, he liked her, the parents made a deal, and then and Simon Tovu Mazalto. But I got curious. What do you mean you want to know how she got married? That means there's a juicy story over here. And anyway, I have five more minutes until I'll be ready. So I said to her, yeah, yeah, I want to hear how she got married. So, when she came to America, she was extremely poor. She was in my class. We grew up together. Her parents couldn't put her in yeshiva. They went to a Russian organization who found a sponsor for her. Who? A guy from here, Mill Basin, Brooklyn. Totally secular. Not religious man. His kids goes to public school. They came to say to him, hey, Vladimir. That wasn't his name, I just made it up. <laughs> Vladimir, there is a girl. Her parents came from Russia, religious parents, very poor. They want to put her in yeshiva to get Jewish education. It's going to cost, I don't know, 800 a month, 1,000 a month. That's what it costs. Will you be able to sponsor her? Supposedly he's a very wealthy man. wasn't such a big deal for him. Okay, I'll do something good in my life. His kids, public school. The girl, yeshiva. He signed, he signed in that he will sponsor the girl. How many years he sponsored her? 16 years. 16 years multiplied by 12 months. You know how much money is that, right? 
approximately 10,000 years, 16 years, 160,000 years. Sounds like a lot. Now after she spoke to me to find her a shiduch, she went to some library. She was sitting there with the books. A secular Jewish girl came to her. Short pants, short sleeves, the whole nine yards. Hi, how are you? I see that you, you're a Jew, you're religious. My name is such and such, what's your name? Da, da, da. Okay, and remember this girl now is telling me the whole story in front of 100 secular guys and girls. Tonight lecture is Torah and science, proofs that the Torah is divine. And they're all listening together with me to the story. So she, so she said to me, the girl came to her and she said, I think maybe I have a shidduch for you. She said to her, oh no, thank you, you know, I'm a very religious girl, I want only Bachur Yeshiva. She said, perfect! My brother was in Or Sameach in Monsi. He's looking for Shidduch, he became very religious. I have a feeling you and him would be a perfect Shidduch. What do you know who I am? Nothing. She followed her in the Sifriya. She looks very modest, this girl. Okay, here is my Rambai's telephone number. Call him, talk to him, suggest, let your brother's rabbi talk to my rabbi, see if it's Shayach. They made up the Shidduch, they went up. Perfect match. Now is the big night. Not the wedding yet. There is a big night before the wedding. If the parents will meet and discuss the, the damage. You know? So now, they gave her the address of his house. They have to go with the car service. So they take a taxi, and they went to the house. Baruch Hashem, nafalnu tov. We settled good, nice house. There is a future here. They walked in, mazal tov, this, nice to meet you, you know. Mechaim! In that night, they found out that the man that paid for her yeshiva for 16 years was the father of this boy. Vladimir. Vladimir. <laughs> or whatever his name was. Imagine if it was really Vladimir. <laughs> Do you understand what just happened here? A secular Russian man, Mechalel Shabbat, not religious, that sends his kids to public school gets an opportunity to support a Jewish neshama of a little four years old girl that came from Russia, from a poor family. Most likely his answer will be, if I care about her, I might as well care about my own children. He didn't want to send his children to yeshiva, not for money reasons. He wanted them maybe to be doctors. I don't know what's the reason that they have. Sometimes it's not the money. But if her parents want her to be religious, I'll sponsor it. How great he felt about it, 16 years. I'm sponsoring a Jewish kid every month, hundreds of dollars every month. You're not doing a favor to anyone, Mr. Dear Vladimir. He became a rhyme, Dear Vladimir. <laughs> You're only doing for yourself. Whatever you do for others, it's an illusion you only do for yourself and for your own children. 
no such thing doing for others. And just look like it. And that's what the Gemara says. Who does the favor to? The rich to the poor or the poor to the rich? The poor to the rich. Why? That's what the Roman Caesar asked Rabbi Akiva. Tell me, if your God loves the poor people so much, as you say, why doesn't he give them some extra money? He owns all the money in the world. And Rabbi Akiva told him, because he wants to save us from hell. How are we going to get saved from hell? When a poor person come and beg you for help, and you give him help, <coughs> it erases a lot of your sins. So if until now hell was written in your file, it's coming to you, you give $10,000 donation, especially if you want to save soul, that's the highest level of any donation on earth. Right away, Hashem has to take the verdict and recalculate. How can I send him to hell? Thanks to him, a hundred kids became Shomre Shabbat. How can I do it? We have to retry the person with different eyes, with much more mercy. So Rabotai, 16 years you pay for someone you don't know and in the end she become your daughter-in-law. What can be more obvious than the hand of Hashem? Seven billion people in the world and Hashem direct this girl to become your daughter-in-law. No? Can happen by, by coincidence? If you tell me yes, I retire. That's it. I heard it. Enough is enough. Can't deal with any more uh, stupidity. Someone will hear such a... St you know what? I asked the people over there, no, you still need proof that the Torah is divine. They all say, no, no. They were shocked. How can they not be shocked? It to be super foolish. To hear such a story and still ask, Rabbi, can you prove, prove to me God exists? So, Rabotai, Paro, <laughs> Paro, raised Moshe, the savior of the Jewish nation, <laughs> in his home. Who saved his life? Itro. Itro, a goy. Who was Itro at that time? The Pope. The Pope teaching Avodah Zarah, Rasha Merusha. Mediach Avodah Zarah. It wasn't a tzaddik that he became later on. But he said to Paro, why will you kill Moshe? Why will you kill him? He's a fool. He's a stupid baby. For that you don't kill a baby. He was one of the three advisors that Paro had. But they didn't accept right away it was offer. Oh, you say it's a fool? Let's test that. Let's check. They brought a ball full of gold. And next to it, chuckles, boiling. And say, here, take, Moshe, take. They wanted to see what he's going to take. Is he going to take the gold or is he going to take the chuckles? If he's going to take the gold, we will kill him. That means he's clever. Already understand the difference between gold and fire. If he will touch the chuckles, how can we kill such a fool? It's touching fire. Okay. He was about to take the gold. What happened? Angel Gabriel pushed his and to the fire. 
And what did he do? He took a piece and put it in his mouth. And that's how he became stuttering. That's what happened. So Moshe said to Hashem, as you know, I have speech problems. Paro knows that. He was there when it happened to me. I grew up in his house. How do you expect him to believe that I am the most worthy person to save the Jewish nation? Right? We have a big dilemma here. I mean, I don't, I don't know, it's a mystery. Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe vel Aaron. Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron. And he asked them to go, commanded them to go to Paro to take out the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim. Right? So Rashi writes, Ve'el Paro melech Mitzrayim, tziva alav lachlok lo kavod bedivrehem. When you go to the king of Egypt, give him respect. Why? That's the law of the land. You have to respect the king even though he's a human being. Upshuto, that's the secret of the verse. And the simple understanding is the, sending them on a mission to save the Jewish nation. We don't understand what does Rashi wants to say here. You know, Rashi is super, 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 super brilliant and deep. What was the point of writing that he told them to give respect to Paro? The verse is clear. Every little kid understands the verse. Go speak to Paro to take the Jewish nation out of Egypt. What do you need commentary on that? Especially when it's strange commentary. How does it add to the story? The Khatam Sofer, remember him? With the donkey? from Hungary, he explained in Megillat Esther chapter 5 verse 4 it's written that Esther the queen invited Haman to the party they had a great wine real wine Persian wine best grapes in Iran they have very good fruits almost as good in Israel I don't understand why Esther give respect to Haman. Uh, who's Haman? The Hitler of those days. A Jewish woman makes a party. You invite the head of the Nazis and give him respect like a king? Esther did not find a way to eliminate Haman without giving him that respect? Since when you give respect to the wicked people? Not just wicked, the worst wicked one. Hatam Sofer just like King Solomon saying Proverbs 16 verse 18. What does it say? Lifne Shever Gaon. Translation. Before the destruction of the wicked people come, you have to elevate him first. Elevate him, then crush him. If you crush him from here, it won't be a real crush. 
if you elevate him to the top of the pyramid and from there you crush him, that's a real insult. A real crush. When you want to smack a person and insult him in front of people, if you give him a regular smack, it's an insult. If you smack him like that, it's a double insult. What's the difference? You hit him here or you hit him over here like this? Like this. What's the difference? Here, it's pah. It's much more insulting. Human logic. Go and go figure. When he falls from high, his pain is much, much, much worse. Where does it say it in Tehillim? What I just said. The clear verse for it. Clear verse. No, no. We say it in the Tefillah of Shabbat. Mizmor shir leyom al Shabbat. Tov leodot ladonai l'zamer shimcha elyon. Skip to the middle of the Mizmor. Ish ba'ar lo yeda. A fool. Ba'ar means an animal. It's like a level of an animal. Like a level of a sheep, a cow. Ish ba'ar. The brain is there, but it's full of straw. Nothing else inside. Ish ba'ar lo yeda. Will not know. Uchsil. Seal means a real fool. Lo yavin et zot. Will not understand. What? Before Cheshaim Kmo Esev. The wicked people popping, growing everywhere like weeds. Weeds grow on a, on a sidewalk. In your driveway. On the side of your house. Everywhere it grows. Weeds. Don't have to plant anything. You don't have to give it water. It grows like cancer. The most wicked one are rising higher than everyone. What? Moment before I crush them for eternity, I elevated them to the highest level. Bennett, Lieberman, Lapid, and the rest of those Reshaim. Crush them from the top of the mountain. Crush them from the first floor. It's not a crush. Bring them to the hundredth floor, and from them you crush them. Why? The pain is much, much more severe. Last thing for tonight. This is the head of the tribes. Bnei Reuven, children of Reuven, etc. Children of Shimon, children of Levi. And then the story begins. Skip Reuven children, skip Shimon. Going to the main thing, Levi, the royal family. Kohanim is Aaron, that's mercy and peace. Levim is judgment, zealous. That's why I need Moshe and Aaron, Le'ava Le'ira. Love and fear. Vayikach Amram et Yocheved Dodato Lo Leisha. Amram is Mary's aunt, going to Mary's aunt. Remember, that's before the Torah was given. 
ותלד לו את אהרון ואת משה. She gave birth to Aaron and Moshe. Why did the Torah mention Reuven and Shimon if the Torah had no plan to talk anything about them? How they relates to this verse? You want to tell us about Moshe and Aaron birth? Why do I care that there was also Reuven and Shimon? Good question or no? You don't have an extra word in the Torah. The answer is, Rabotai, we learn when the kingdom of King David, when Shmuel was sent to Hashem to spill the oil on the head of King David, is one of the sons of Ishai. All his brothers were standing there and David was in a mountain with a sheep. They suspected him that he's an illegitimate son. Do not walk around in town. Make sure you hide. You're bringing too much shame to our family. Stay with the sheep. Shmuel did not get instruction to go to Ishai to nominate David. That's not what Hashem told him. Hashem say one of the sons of Ishai is future to be the king. But he didn't tell him which one. Why Hashem didn't tell him, God, there is a son named David? Find him and uh, nominate him. Why? I'm a prophet. You're sending me on a mission to, to nominate the new king. Why don't you tell me who? Go to the house. One of the sons of Isha is the king. They brought Eliav. He looks very nice, tall, handsome, charismatic. Hashem said, don't look at the outside. Don't look at him that he's tall and nice looking. I'm not interested in him. They brought the second one, the third, the fourth. Every one of them Shmuel was sure that he should be the king. Based on the way they look. Hashem said wrong, 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 wrong. He finished all of them. Shmuel was puzzled. So who else? Do you have any other kids? He asked him. Didn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a son, Tzaddik, Tzaddik Esod Olam, the greatest Neshama in the world. No. You know how? Um, yeah, you have or you don't have? <laughs> the question is, before we find out what Ishai, remember, Ishai is the biggest Tzaddik in the world. One of four people who never committed one sin in his entire life. Dolador. Why Hashem needed this whole show? What is it, Broadway over here? What was this show about? Remember, if Hashem does something, you must find out why. It will affect your life. The answer is, Rabotai, if the prophet will get a direct order to go immediately to David, people would say, you know why he chose David? Because it was the first one he saw. Just like in my shul on Shabbat, when I want to give out the aliyot to people, we all stand next to the Aaron Kodesh. So the first two that stand close to me, I let one of them open the echal and the other one take out the Torah. It's convenient. Uh, you, you over there! 
you, everybody sing, he doesn't hear, everyone with his sidu, forget about it, you, open the ark, you, take out the Torah, why? So everybody say, you know what, I should stand next to you, when we, when we about to, you know, when we start, why? First one who stand next to you get to take out the Torah, true, convenient. Benji, you decided to choke us? Whoever Anyway, Rabotai, before we get choked completely, let me just finish this. So that's why Hashem made a show that He checked each one of them with the oil. Here, that's the oil. It's supposed, it has a horn like a shofar. The only difference is shofar is open from the bottom, the wide hole. Here it's closed, right? Oh, I just became the king. <laughs> so the oil supposed to go on the head. It doesn't go. Next one, doesn't go. Next one, doesn't go. Everybody saw it. Nobody argue. You cannot go against the law of gravity unless if it's the hand of Hashem, right? So it, it doesn't. When David walked into the room, the oil jumped right to his head. It didn't even have to go close. Shh. Everyone was shocked. It was the biggest shock in history. Remember, everyone was sure that he's a mamzer. That's why they threw him out. Get out of here. Why you keep showing your face here? That's why when we say Halel, there is a verse in Halel. Even ma'asu abonim, aita lerosh pina. The brick that the builder did not want Everybody throw it. Why are you giving me this brick? Ugly. Throw it. Again, it, it comes to the builder. He throw it out. Again, it comes to his end. He throw it out. The brick that nobody wanted became the center of the building. In the greatest place. Which is talking about himself. Even Masu, the Bunim, Nimaslam. Throw it out. Throw him out of here. Why is he here? The brick that nobody wanted became the main thing in the building. Meaning me. That nobody wanted me became the king and the Mashiach is coming for me. And when he prays, who does he praise? Not his father. His mother. Ani avdecha ben amatecha. Pitachta lemoserai. Moserai means handcuffs. Those who handcuff me, you open all the nuts. You set me free, thanks to my mother. Now, your father is the greatest tzaddik in history. Don't you want to bring him in a tehillim? You write such beautiful songs, Beruach HaKodesh. You don't want to mention your father, the biggest tzaddik ever? You should say, Ani avdecha ben avdecha. Ani avdecha ben Ishai atzaddik. Something like that. Nothing about Ishai. Who is the only one who never turned her back to him? His mother. The love of a mother to her son is unconditional. So, same thing over here. Why the Torah brings Ruven and Shimon and then focus on Levi? Everyone was taken to consideration. And Levi is the greatest. From here the salvation will come. 
all the Shvatim were mentioned until we focus on Shevet Levi. To tell you that Levi was not chosen because he was the first one in the order. He was chosen because he was the best one. Otherwise, oh, that was the first one and Hashem went by the right order. <coughs> Rav Moshe Feinstein Zatzal, he lived right here in Lower East Side, in Manhattan. Who would ever believe that such a holy man would be most of his life a rabbi in the city of all the righteous people? Don't laugh loud. You can smile, but don't be so obvious. And he... By the way, today we laugh about it, but Lower East Side used to be just as good as Bopak. It's very religious in the beginning. Until the Chinese took over and other things happened. But for a while there was Marash, a very religious area. Many synagogues, a lot of tzaddikim, Talmidei Chachamim. They asked Rav Moshe Feinstein, why we lost it to Chinatown? Center of so, so much Torah. And what did he say? Because we did not serve Hashem with simcha. We did. We were religious. It wasn't showing the children the love to the Torah. <coughs> Rav Moshe Feinstein said, the Torah talks about the genealogy. Aaron and Moshe, Hashem sent them to take them out of Egypt and they speak to Paro. They reach the highest level of prophecy. Right? Now, when they reach the best time in their life, the Torah brings their genealogy to give respect to their parents. In the beginning, it's a Vaikach Amram et Yocheved Dodato lo Leisha, Vateled lo et Aaron vet Moshe. Right? Until now, the Torah did not say the names. The Torah just said, Vayelech ish mi bet Levi, a man from the tribe of Levi, without saying Amram. Amen. Anonymous. And he took a daughter from the tribe of Levi. What happened? What's the mysterious secret here? Everything in the Torah is so deep. Every little thing teaches so much. Do you think he'll, teach, he'll learn Torah like it's a newspaper? Why until now Hashem hides the identity of the parents? And now when Moshe and Aaron reach the highest level of their life, when they receive prophecy, Hashem revealed the name of the parents. Why? To teach us a big lesson. What is the greatest honor to a parent? That their children reach the highest level of righteousness and holiness. Until now there were nobody. And if we mention who the parents of some stupid soccer player or model how, how exactly we honor the parents. In a stupid world, parents are happy that their children are athletes, or lawyers, or doctors, or accountants, or politicians. Fine, we live in a stupid world, we know it. In a decent, honest, spiritual world, the only honor to the parents is the greatness of their children in Torah and mitzvot and irat shamayim and modesty and holiness. Do you understand? So 
So the next time when your son tells you, Abba, I want to be Avrech. If you have the money, kiss his feet. Son, you make me the happiest man in the world. Everything is on me. House, car, monthly allowance, whatever I live for you. I'll work extra job. Why? Your glory is my glory. For Torah? For Torah, I'll kill myself. For other nonsense, you're not going to get a dollar from me. Go work, kill yourself. You want to be a Tamid Chacham? It's the greatest gift I can give. It's an eternal income. I want to invest it. One person told me today, I had a son that was off the derech. I lost him. Drugs, problem, off the, completely off the religion. I decided I want to save that boy. I spent $100,000 on him a long time ago. It was probably like three times more than today. That's a, basically a lot of money. But I saved him. He came back. He's clean. He became a tzaddik, got married. He, he chose his jobs not based on the money, based on what place is modest, what place is holier. I had to see the happiness that this man had when he told me that story. Usually when people spend $100,000, <laughs> not exactly glowing when they think about how much they invested. Unless the investment paid off big time. And I would like to finish with a story that will bring some tears to your eyes. There used to be a rabbi few hundred years ago in Tzfat, what was that, the Ritbaz or the Ratbaz? The one who lived in Tzfat. One, one, there's two of them, I get confused between their names. He lived a few hundred years ago in Tzfat. Tzfat is one of the only places in Israel that you may get snow in the winter, all the way in the north, cold at night. And uh, one time it was massive snowstorm. Remember, it's not America. They plow this, you have special tires. We're talking donkeys. The snow reached the head of the monkey, the donkey already. You can't even move the donkey stuck in the snow. So you had to shovel with your hands to get to the synagogue. Mincha time. Middle of the day, 4 p.m., winter. Massive snow. Will you have a minyan or not? The rabbi made it to shul and was crying. People started to show up in the synagogue. What happened, rabbi? Why are you crying? Uh, what happened? I'm crying because I remember my father and my family. No, what now in the middle of the winter now? You remember your family. What's your, the yard site or something? No, no. What, Rabbi, what? Today I almost did not come to Daven Mincha with you. I saw the snow. It was so cold and windy. I was thinking all the ten minutes to walk will become half an hour now in the snow falling. So I decided, you know what, today I'm going to pray at home. I won't go to the Minyan. And just when I was about to start praying with my Sidur at home, what happened to me? My father's vision came to me. And I remember when I was a kid, 
my father realized that I'm, I have a great potential in Torah and he wanted to, send, to get me a private tutor that will teach me separately from the regular yeshiva because the kids there are not in my level. Why wasting time? I can be somebody big in a short period of time. But it cost a lot of money. And my father used to build oven, bricks, like chimney, to heat the house. That people put bricks, special bricks, and you put wood inside, light the wood, and it, it warms the house. Primitive, but expensive to buy the bricks. The bricks are made in Italy hundreds of years ago. You have to bring it on a boat. It's expensive, all handmade. You need special bricks that the fire will not, it will not burn the house. We had a brick, an oven like this. My father found out that one rich man making a wedding to his son and there is no oven like this to be, to buy. He cannot reach anywhere in Israel. And he started to ask around if anybody is willing to sell his heater. And my father asked my mother and my family members, I want to sell the oven to this rich man and with the money that we're gonna get, I'm gonna hire a Rebbe to teach the Radbaz, teach him to make him Gadol Batorah, but I will only do it if all of you agree. Because we're gonna have a very cold winters coming ahead, with no heat, with snow, with winds. Remember, the house was not with insulation like today. I don't have to tell you how freezing it was. Even today with the heat, you freeze. In Jerusalem, it's fat, you die over there. It's wet, wet, cold. It's not dry. And everybody immediately say, of course, Abba, of course, sell it. That it should be Gadol Batorah. And they sold the oven to the rich man. And my father hired for me a tour there. And he taught me for a few years with the money of this oven. And everybody in my house was sitting, freezing like this. Six months every year. I see, I come home, I see the old freeze. They're all dying from the freezing. For me that I will become Gadol Batorah. And now, for a little bit cold weather, I almost did not come today to the synagogue. What a trader I am. I betrayed them. They gave their life for me to be Chacham, and for 10 minutes of freezing weather, I almost didn't come. This is the life of a person, Rabotai. In a, mo in a moment, you can forget everything. You can be ungrateful, you can forget <laughs> your legacy, you can forget where you come from, or the other way around. In, a, in the heat of a moment, you wake up and you remember where you come from, just like the son of Rav Yonatan Eifchitz that was went completely off the derech, was about to marry a Christian woman. They already have a date. His father kept coming to him in a dream. He, does, he did not convince him to stop. He was a very rich man. He left him some money. He took that money, invested, became such a rich man, friend with all the Christians. 200 years ago, the Christians were in power. His father, holy, huge, Talmid Chacham, one of the biggest rabbi ever lived, Rav Yonatan Eivshitz, Yarot Vash. 
And his father said to him, you're gonna burn me here in Olam Abba, you're gonna marry a non-Jewish girl. The dream didn't help until one time he threw him out of the bed in the middle of the night. He woke up and he sees he sleeps on the floor. The dream is not just a dream. My father was really here. And what happened in the end? He came to the Gabai and he said to his, of his father, help me to do tshuva. And from the worst Jew, he came all the way back to be the best one. He had a lot of money, started to give donations, to support, to save souls. And Baruch Hashem, he got saved. There's more details to the story. Avovadi Yosef brought it in one of his lectures. I don't remember the rest of the details, but it was an amazing story. But what would have happened if his father wasn't a legend and he didn't get permission to come and save his son? Another moment, it will be the end of him. His children will not be even Jewish. Today, Baruch Hashem, I had the school to save a boy like this. I was with a non-Jewish girl. Nothing helped until I sat with him last night for a long, long time with his family. And today we got the answer that Baruch Hashem, he, even though, you know, I don't have to tell you the desire that a person may have for a woman, and I'm in love, and I can't live without her, you know, all these things, especially when you're young like this. To, to stick to the truth of Hashem, to think about your family, to think that you sacrifice so much for the truth, is not easy in today's generation. And a person come and say, I know, I want her, I like her, I love her, whatever the case may be, but for Hashem, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to fight with my personal will. And I told him, you wait and see. Hashem never, ever deprived the person that sacrificed for him. Never. The next girl you're going to get will be the best one ever. Only when you're going to get the real Shiduch, then you're going to look back and laugh what you were about to do. But if you didn't listen to the Rabbi, or to your Yetzer Atov, or to Alacha, you would never know it until sometimes you will find out later on, but by then it will be too late already. Hopefully, we'll stick always to the truth. Next week, I'm still going to be here. The trip to Canada is now cancelled because they're all in lockdown. So, we got lucky. We have another Tuesday together next weekend. Next week, if, if nothing else will happen, you know, with this world, every day we survive, it's a miracle. Baruch Adonai Amen, Amen. Rabbi Hanania Ben Akashia,